Welcome to the Macomb Israel Teacher's Lounge podcast, where we connect students and listeners to what's happening in Israel and give you insight behind the headlines. I'm your host, Michael Unterberg, here as always with co-host Alan Goldman. How you doing, Alan? Doing okay, Mike. <laughs> All right, well, that's good. And we are joined once again by producer Matt Lippman. How are you, Matt? I'm very well, thank you, Michael. Ah, very well. Uh, well, let's... Uh, this is our end of the year roundup episode where we often uh, go over what happened in the past year and then avoid making predictions for the future so that we don't have to look stupid. Although uh, we've done pretty good as predictors this past year. Oh, I thought so, you were going to say we've done good at looking stupid. So. <laughs> always good at that. That's our specialty. But uh, let's take a look at what we think are really major stories that define this past year in Israel. Uh, and reflect on them a little bit and talk about why they're relevant for the future. Or in some cases, uh, I think their non-relevance is relevance, like the annexation story. But uh, let's start with security issues, Iran. Yeah. What were the big... Uh, before we started recording, Alan, you said this has been a big Iran year. What did you mean by yeah. that? Well, they've been basically Israel has, I think, uh, you know, if not... Uh, continued even upped its you know openly clandestine um, uh, war of attrition against Iran's mm -hmm. uh, nuclear uh, capabilities and expanse and expanse expanding its influence in uh, the northern at least north of Israel, right? Syria and Lebanon. Uh, Syria, Lebanon, and you know there's been there were a lot of earlier in the year there were a lot of uh unexplained explosions in very sensitive places then of course there was the assassination of the of one of the top nuclear scientists um all these things that have been attributed to israel but israel hasn't taken credit for and of course i mean some of those explosions up north israel took credit for those attacks oh, up north. oh i was talking about the ones in iran the ones yeah, in iran oh, but oh, yeah yeah and then there's the targeted, you know, hits in in Lebanon and Syria that we hear about on ongoing, you know, uh, raids, you know, of stuff. So there's really, it seems like to me, is Israel's even up the game a bit? Mm -hmm. uh, Do you think would you call this a state? Go ahead, Matt. So I was going to say it was interesting. This morning there was a report in the in a number of the papers that the IDF have published their sort of end-of-year review. Um, and in it, they said they'd hit over 50 yeah. Syrian targets. Now, those I'm not yeah. sure if two or three years ago that would have featured in an end-of-year report, because as Alan was saying, it was always sort of been openly clandestine. And now, well, that's very open <laughs> to say we've hit 50 targets. Mm -hmm. Right. And we know those targets are really targeting uh, Iran and Hezbollah, not Syria itself, other than, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, well, yeah, but, but I don't even know, are they technically all the forces that were hitting in Syria? I don't know that they're all technically Hezbollah. I think they're really Iranian military. No, I said Iranian and Hezbollah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not, not Syrian, just right. to distinguish it from Syrian. We're not attacking the Syrian government, right. so to speak. So w it, it's very funny that we talk about this as security issues when I, I think it's fair to say we're actually at war with Iran, aren't we? I mean, we're in actual combat. Um, it would seem that way. The question, I mean, I don't know if we have a declared war. Right. Legally, I don't know yeah. that this is a status of war, but it's yeah. at least, I mean, we're shooting, and it's not like a cold proxy war where, you know, American troops are engaging the Viet Cong who are representing 
or Yemen, what's going on in Yemen between Yemen and right. Saudi Arabia? I mean, between right. uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia and Yemen, where they have their proxies fighting it out. This right. is Israelis versus Iranians. Yes. If anything, it's an underplayed story. Iran remaining yeah. the one country in the Middle East that openly seeks to destroy Israel. Yeah. At least in open, at least in rhetoric. I think, by the way, part of the reason we don't pay attention to this story is because it has become so normal, right? If a, if what's the old cliche in journalism? If a man bites a dog, that's not a good news story. But if, I mean, sorry, if a dog bites a man, that's not a good news story. But if a man bites a dog, that's a good news story. So things that are surprising and unanticipated makes a good news story. But things that just become routine. Uh, I'll give uh, a. Uh, I, I'll, I'll. Doesn't. Gra- Yes, and. I'll yes, and you, as we like to say. Go ahead. I think yes, and. It's also because it really has not... Iran, uh, thank God, and hopefully they will continue to be poorly uh, um, responsive, has not really been able to respond to Israel so that it, that Israel Israelis feel it. Meaning, there's really no Israel... They've not hit Israel in any significant way. And I think if, um, yeah. if we would, unfortunately, God forbid, we shouldn't see, you know... Uh, serious attack on Israel's side, then you'd see it much more at the front of the Right, the strategy action. seems to be to creeping put assets in place so that they can hurt Israel, but they're not really ready to engage. Although, they've certainly engaged other countries. I mean, they took out a huge chunk of Saudi Arabia's oil yeah. refinery infrastructure, and nobody in the world did anything. Mm-hmm. So, I think part of the idea of the Israeli strategy of... Uh, of, of these strikes is Iran has to know that Israel's not afraid to hit back deterrence well, no. that, that, that yeah, it, it's, it's it, also it, interesting because we're going to come soon to the um, right we're going to come soon to the Abraham Accords and uh, one of the things there is they were sort of like visitors to the UAE and places like that and they're saying that whether um, Israelis are, are going to be threatened there if they're, if they're safe in places like Dubai because of they're trying to put Iranian sort of terrorist uh, cells and things like that there. So, I mean, I know we'll come to, to the Abraham Accords a bit later, but it's something to think about as well, that these uh, threats to Israelis and to Israel and Israeli civilians doesn't have to be like dropping a bomb on Israel, right? It can take other forms as well in terrorism and things like that. Like the Ar- Where? Argentinian embassy, the Argentinian embassy in the 1990s, right? The Israeli embassy an in example. Argentina. Yeah. And in Bulgaria a few years ago, his, there was a Hezbollah cell that attacked Israeli tourists in Bulgaria. Like, you know, so somehow I'm not it's sure how you're connecting that. What, what was your point about the Abraham Accords? Uh, no, because now Israelis are openly going to Dubai and places like that, which they weren't doing prior, prior oh, to I the Accords. Right. They could be targets and there. Now there's, they could be targets there. Right. That's what they, they were warning. Because I've read some crazy statistics, like since those accords were signed, over 50,000 Israelis have visited uh, the UAE suddenly. Yeah, they're called, um, it's easier to, get yeah. to, easier to get to the Nilat, so that they go there now. No, it's also that because there, there's no um, COVID restrictions, so people are going and having simchas there or having parties there, like uh, weddings and bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs and things like that. But I, I don't know how well, I don't know how well Iranian cells are infrastructured into places like Dubai that are uh, that are antagonistic to Iran. I don't know that Iran has 
striking capabilities there. I do know that part of the motivation for the Abraham Accords, at least part of it, is those countries wanting to hold back Iran, that, that they're sort of on the same side as Israel. Right. Right? I mean, isn't that... One yeah, of the motivating the, factors yeah. of normalization with these countries is we're united against Iran. So I don't know that Israelis are more, more vulnerable there necessarily. I don't know. No, I, I hope not. But I, I just remember reading somewhere that there was a concern about it. But that concern doesn't seem to have dimmed anybody's enthusiasm to travel. So uh, as you yeah. say, nothing's happened yet. So people are nervous about it. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the Abraham Accords. That's That's... To me, that's the biggest news story really of the year, the normalization within the Arab world from and, and, and you know, we've always been on this precipice also this like openly clandestine diplomatic relationship with so many of these Middle Eastern and North African countries. And now it's really coming way out into the open by having normalization relationships with um, UAE, Bahrain. Sudan and Morocco to varying degrees. Do you yeah. agree that this, this, is, a, this is a big uh, paradigm I mean, shift in the Middle East? There's no doubt that it has the potential to be a game changer and mm -hmm. to be the thing that's going to be most remembered about 2020, you know, in the history books, right? Uh, Assuming it lasts. I'm saying, obviously, we have no idea of how it's going to, what it's going to last. But if, if the... If the domino effect continues as it's continuing, as like with Morocco and 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 Sudan and other places, so it could really be, you know, it will be it it, it, it could really be the shift in the Middle East in Israel's, you know, neighborhood relations neighborhood relations that that will be most remembered. Um, yeah, it's, I, I think it's not just uh, a beneficial step of progress. It's a it's a real. Acknowledge change in Arab thinking to view the Zionist endeavor not as a colonialist invasion, but as a fellow Semitic tribe setting up in the region. Right. Naming right. it I the mean, Abraham a, Accords. That's, right. That's a huge paradigm shift. I mean, yeah. and, uh, I, I, I mean the, the, that way of thinking is completely new and different. Um, and who knows, it really could have a significant lasting impact in, in the region. Uh, of course, we say we're not predictors of anything, but it, it, the fact that there's been such a big change suggests that the impact and the, and the outcome will be different will be different because of the, the input is different. So maybe the outcome will also be different. I hope so. Uh, I mean, there were efforts in the past, like, like Chaim Weitzman with Amir Faisal in the pre-state years, where you know he sort of had agreement, but it never caught on. And now it's really new that it's actually catching on at a leadership level. I mean, I mean, the question is that I mean, there's two. I have two points. One point is going back to what Matt was saying before, which I think is really critical. We we don't see after the you know um, peace agreements with Egypt and Jordan, um, you did see tourism there and travel, but not so instantaneous. You know? And not full normalization, um, yeah. It's and, a really and not full big normalization. difference. It really, you know, um, clearly we, ne I mean, we were never at war with them, so that does obviously have a different uh, take on it. But the question is if that if that attitude will now fall over to the uh, to our more direct neighbors, such as Egypt and Jordan, um, Lebanon, and those places. That, that, Look, that will mean, be that will be the marker, I think, which yeah. it, which makes it's, it's a real real change. Is if those countries start 
more normalizing relations. Well, we'll see. That's I mean, hard it, to it, see. It, it, the the level of the warmth of the relationship shows that it's not just strategic alliance against Iran. Yeah. That there's something else going on also. There's there's a desire to work with Israel in all sorts of ways. So either that'll spread or it won't. I don't know. I, I think I think each country has its own dynamics that it has to worry about. You know, Egypt yeah. has to take care of it, you know, has to keep its Muslim Brotherhood minority relatively quiet. Jordan is always the leaders of Jordan are always walking this tightrope as colonially placed monarchs. So it's right. very tricky. E- even Turkey is 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 signaling shifting back to a warmer relationship with Israel. So I, I don't know what about I don't know what's turning that around. Yeah. But yeah, it could be that we look at this historically as wow, that was a cool blip, or it could be the beginning of something, uh, a, a really a new chapter in the Middle East. I think that's a good. Uh, I think that's a good way to um, set it up. And I think yeah. you know, I I, I also have, I think that economic issues that are going to be resulting of the COVID crisis probably will play into that. Meaning. Meaning, you know, as as governments uh, experience more stress because of economic crisis and politics and all the, the fallout from this last year, we're, we're still not really seeing, yeah. you know, the full fallout. So that 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 will spark sort of new strategic movements, um, again, economically, politically, and how Israel plays into that. And Israel is it, it even looks like Israel's come out OK still, meaning Israel's like uh, startup venture capital is up. It's like the highest it's mm-hmm. been. I just saw a paper today. So like, you know, if Israel is able to still capitalize on a strong economy and, uh, and being a leader in the region economically, that, that is enticing. I mean, you know, there, there's good yeah. reasons um, to, to, to build on those relationships. It's not all about Iran. It's other yeah. things too. Um, right, because it, to, to see it that way, right? Because it's not just, as, as you were saying before, it's not just my enemy's enemy is my friend. It's like, this guy really has something to offer me and something to give me. And we know Israel's uh, success in sort of the high-tech world and in biomedical stuff. And the the um, the countries around us really want to tap into that. And Israel wants to tap into the, 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 what they have to offer. And I, and I really see that, um, it, as you say, it's not just sort of this anti-Iran uh, alliance, but it's actually that there's genuine possibilities of uh, cooperation here and collaboration and working mm-hmm. together. And we forget that these places really aren't that far. Right? Like I said, it's a three hour flight to Dubai. That's, you know, if you think about how that's like London to Madrid or, or something more or less. Right. So oh, yeah. It, it's, uh, I always think about London and Madrid. <laughs> after well, after only- COVID, maybe you'll be able to travel, but. It's only a three hour. It's only a three hour flight to Madrid from here. Also, three and a half hour. I would say it's more so like maybe we'll uh, become New the gateway to, to the world. Yeah, <laughs> it's like I New actually York think to that there is that part. By the way, there is a they're, they're trying to make Israel part of be a hub to, in the Middle East. That's mm-hmm. been Israel's problem. One of Israel's problems in terms of airfare, air flights, is that the only way you only come to Israel if you're coming to Israel if you're flying to Israel because it's. Of those neighborly relations, but now yeah. if Israel gets more ability to fly around, it could actually turn into also a hub for people traveling to the Middle East. The which Atlanta also has of the Middle East. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. I'm sure the airport will handle that perfectly well. I was, I was like Heathrow. <laughs> basically, Heathrow is the size of Israel anyway. So. 
<laughs> if they br- if they bring a world of whiskies to Ben Gurion, then we'll all be happy. I think so. That's uh, that's okay. All right. Well, we we brought up the economic issues that come from COVID. Obviously, I think the COVID story is so big. I don't know that we have much to say in summary of it, other than that Israel started off handling it pretty well, kind of lost total control in the middle, and are now overachieving in the distribution of vaccines. I mean, so, I think it's cla- I do. I think it's classic Israel. I mean, you know, it's, it, it, Israel's classically good at emergency operations, which is what you know distributing the vaccine is. It's an operation. It's an emergency. And the original lockdown also. Yeah, an the original emergency. Lockdown. Let's all lock down. Yeah. yeah, not great at strategy, like long term strategies. Like Israel's right. wars really last are quick. <laughs> they need to be quick. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, like, because that's a, so I think that it actually really represents Israel, the fact that we're having another spike and like leading the, the vaccine. I think it just really captures the Israeli, you know, culture in a, in a lot of ways um, for, right. you know, and, for good or for bad. Course, There's nothing perfect. Right. And, and of course, Israelis, we know, are not great at keeping rules. But the, the first time round with the lockdown, yeah. I think everybody really did keep to it. By the second time, the discipline really did waver a lot. And by the third time, I mean, it's it's almost hard to notice, really, that there is, is a lockdown for in many regards, well, I think. I think you'd have to have rules to follow for to judge if people are following the rules. It's the most open. I don't know how the word lockdown applies. Well, I saw frankly. the best headline I saw was fake Sager, fake lockdown, right? You know? Like fake news. It's like, you know. I mean, obviously, if I owned a, a store or a restaurant, I'd be furious right now because they're like, they're what's shut down. These 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 small businesses are, yeah. and everything else is ru- up and running. Yeah. I think I'm, yeah, so I'm I, a little I, I bit, so- I am also a little bit furious about the school thing, like Matt, that Matt had mentioned all of his kids. It's very hard on, on you know, my daughter. It's brutal. You know, in terms yeah. of, she had, a te- she had a test on Tuesday and up until Monday night. Is there going to be a test? Is it going to be in school? Is it going to be on Zoom? What does mm-hmm. all of those mean? She couldn't even study because she was so, you know, so. Yeah, you know. well, it, 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 right. It's incredibly disruptive. But, but I go I, back you know, to, I, yeah. I go that's back not an to Israel actually, story. That's international. It is, it is international. I do remember, I forget who it was, um, one of the... I, either Moshe Bar Simantov or one of those, you know, people who were speaking in the beginning of the COVID, and that's what they they said. Though this is what's going to happen: it's going to be opening and closing until we get a vaccine, and you're just going to have to get used to the fact that, you know, it's going to be disruptive, and you're not going to know. And and it's like one of those it's like those things of knowing something intellectually or in theory, and then when you actually experience it, it's it's, it's difficult. It's difficult times. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I didn't really understand was when people were talking in those days. And people, like you say, the experts that really laid it all out. If you were reading and listening to the experts and how these things happen, you know, these public health experts, they said, here's what's going to happen. Here's how it's going to look. And I remember them talking about the fatigue and people not wanting to follow the rules. And I remember thinking, really? People are going to be so fatigued that they're not going to follow the rules of avoiding an epidemic? Um, And I understand it much better now that, you know, that that, that those, they understood what they were talking about because they understood the history. Yeah. So it it was very interesting because the other day, I I was in the old city the other day to teach. So I I drove to the, the, 
Chartsion parking lot, which is normally a nightmare, tons of spaces. And as I walked through Chartsion, I was stopped by the police. I was walking, I wasn't mm-hmm. driving, I, I was walking through and they um, they said, excuse me, do you live in the in the old city? I said, no, I do not. He said, why are you here? I said, I'm teaching. I have a um, an insurer, a permission letter from Permit, the Shiva yeah. where I teach. And he said, okay, so let me see it, please. I took it out of my bag. He said, fine. And I walked into the old city and I couldn't believe how quiet it was. I, I really just assumed because near where I live in Modien, around to people, yeah, are within their one kilometer. But I guess unless you, uh, people are sort of keeping to it, kind of. But in the old city, it was the only people that were there were Madresha Arava girls, Hakotel guys, Aish guys, and Orita boys. Those were the only people I saw walking around. There was one shop open, like one mini market and, and one bakery, and that was it. It was so quiet and it, it, it was really creepy. That's really good news for me because I'm teaching there tonight and I'm looking forward to the uh, more expansive parking. parking. That's, yeah. This is all totally <laughs> worth it for me. It's all about the parking. Yeah, I mean, yeah. in my teaching this week in Jerusalem, I have not seen – it didn't – I mean, maybe there was a little less foot traffic and a little less car traffic, but it looked I, – I would not have known it was a Seger. But it's interesting that in the old city, you do see the difference. Someone showed me a picture of Ben Yehuda last night at like 5 o'clock. Someone yeah. showed me a picture and it was it was empty. It was it was like empty. two in the morning. It was empty, empty, empty. So wow. I think that the places like that, those shopping areas that are like get lots of traffic and tourists and this and that are empty, but people's normal lives, like you're saying, the the small business owners and the restaurants are the ones that are really probably suffering the most. Yeah. Yeah, my, my yeah, heart breaks. So I, 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 heart breaks. My, Yep. And, such and my stress, wife such the, terrible stress. It, it's, and, it, and it's crazy because it seems very arbitrary in a way, right? So uh, my wife went to the post office yesterday. She said there's this huge line of like 30 people outside the post office all waiting for their packages they've yeah. ordered from Chutzlar. It's because they can't go shopping here. Nobody's social mm-hmm. distancing. They're all smushed on top of each other. And across the hallway from the post office, there's a guy, really sweet guy. We know him well. He's, he has a Judaica store and he's closed. And he's like looking at this bullet gun happening in the post office and he can't open his store. Like, it, it, it's crazy. Makes no sense. But that, that was just your way of bragging that you bought something. We get it. You're cool. You can buy things from no, the country. You're awesome. Actually, I'll, I'll You're tell just you, bragging. We my, get sister, it. My, my sister sent me a welfare package. But yeah, sure. Okay. From London. Oh, which I see. Not bragging great... about the welfare package. Yeah, wow. <laughs> I hope it does. London hasn't I hope got it anything to brag British... about, so don't worry. I hope it doesn't have the British have mutation a... in it. I have not too. <laughs> oh, that's how it got here. Okay, well, politically, I don't know. We've analyzed it to death, I think, also. We had more to say than I thought about COVID, but politically, we had this beautiful unity government with more ministers than in the history of Israel that solved all our problems, so we don't really have anything else to analyze there. That's worked out great. No, well, the death uh, of blue and white in 2020. Well, you know, I always tell my students, obviously I'm being sarcastic, uh, uh, the, 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 I always tell my students that political parties in Israel are like a slow motion lava lamp. Like you watch them sort of cluster and then separate into pieces and then recluster. And then, so right now we're in the middle of another recluster as that wonderful unity government totally fell apart and dissolved. And now collapse of blue and white and every, and you have all these efforts to rush in and fill the space but i don't think we have to cover that in an end of the year episode because that's pretty recent and we'll be unpacking that once things have a little more clarity 
I don't know. Because, of course, we, d- we don't know no. yet. We don't know which parties will be standing. We don't know who will be smushing together in that lava lamp uh, yeah. uh, I'm, I, I will imagery. Do, setting myself up for you guys to call me stupid, I will... I will oh, don't worry. I would call death. you that anyway. I know. If you didn't I will mark the time yeah. of death. I will mark the time of death of blue and white in 2020. That's 2020, yeah. not 2021. Agree. Oh, yeah, they're I not going to even make it to 2021. That. I think that's a good guess, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, what's going to take over? The Israelis? Well, that's the question. The New Hope? I wouldn't... The Israelis. Ex- exactly. Sounds like a bad miniseries. I, there is one. <laughs> I call that. Yeah. But I wouldn't, um, I, I wouldn't predict what will be. I will agree with you. I think that's a way of, uh, Alan, of a, a way of analyzing it to death of blue and white. But in terms of who's going to actually be on our ballot paper when we get to the, the ballot box in March... No idea. Absolutely zero clue. Well, no, you have some clue, but you're just not sure who's going to take the spot of blue and white. I mean, you know Likud's going to be there. You know. Okay. Well, the, Likud will be Yelena's there. Yelena's going to be will there. Likud you know make the, some sort of. The Haredi parties are going to be there. You know that, right? You know the Lieberman's okay, party's I... going to be there, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not sure. Lieberman could join, join in with Gidon Saad, realistically. He could. I, think I don't think he will. He, I, He's going to hold I, I his feet to my I don't think it's unfeasible. I'm not sure it will. Ha- That's what I'm saying. I don't think it's possible to make these predictions. I think the, oh. the this Hayisraelim, at some point, somebody's going to turn around and say, listen, you've just got to join with Yair Lapid. But maybe they won't. So it's it's impossible to predict. Right? Like, Yamina and Gidon Sa might come together. Who knows? I just... I don't Center know. to further That's left what I'm saying. is up in the air. And the far right is, is going to be a little bit more in flux, not as much as the left. But there, you know, so you have your solid spots and your chaotic bogs of confusion. But it's been a, a bad political year in Israel, although Bibi's done a great job of not only once again causing chaos to his advantage, but also keeping his trial and indictment out of the news, out of focus in his attempts to take over his own prosecution. He's once again showed that he is the master at using the politi- the tools of politics for his own yeah. control. I don't know. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, but certainly with the mark, we're marking, marking things. It's, the, it's a marker for the first time in Israel's history, a sitting prime minister was indicted and stayed as prime minister, right? We've well, had prime that's the first time a sitting before. prime minister was indicted and he chose to stay prime minister. No, then Omar, uh, was, Omar resigned. When while he was, he was prime minister? I mean, like they're happening together. Maybe I'm remembering maybe, wrong. It could be you. I mean, he knew he was wrong. going to be indicted, so he, so he yeah. resigned. But I'm saying they Nahon. came, you know. Which to me together. seems like the normal thing to do. If you're if you're facing indictment, then you step away, both to deal with your personal legal troubles, but also because a country shouldn't have a prime minister. But BB presents oh. himself as the indispensable man, and so he can't yeah. afford to or, for the good of the nation. Or if your of narrative is that, is that that it's a political attack. If, if your narrative is it's a political right. attack and there's nothing behind the indictments, why would you step down? But there's that famous guess, video that was doing the rounds recently, That's, right? That BB himself said in an interview. When Ehudoma, in the Ehudoma case, said anyone who's under indictment should not be prime minister of Israel. So that's one of those classics where people bring it to flash it back in your face like a big mirror. But he ignores that, right? So maybe it's because of that he thinks he's the savior of of Israel, maybe because he doesn't want to face the the prospect of what may happen if he does admit, like, I don't know, all sorts of crazy things uh, happening there. But he's ignoring the fact, basically, that he's under indictment. Or you see it as a political attack. They're using they're using the courts to politically attack you. So therefore, 
It's not a legitimate yeah, indictment. You're paranoid. I would argue they're not after you, right? I, I don't know that you could say that that's really a good faith argument. That the entire system is is. I I, I think that's a bad faith political argument. I don't think he really. I don't know. It uh, seems no, it seems unlikely to me, especially since they have. That's what he seems to be arguing. That's what he seems to be arguing on the face of it. Right, what he's but so. is that a good faith argument that he's making because he believes it, or is it a bad faith argument he's making to keep his his voters behind him? But he knows he he knows that's garbage. I mean, I don't, I don't know. know. I, I never had dinner with him, so I don't know. Yeah, I'm okay with that. Yeah, he <laughs> probably wouldn't have rice up his nose. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes happens to some people we know whose name we won't mention <laughs> Alan okay uh, but you uh, get pistachio ice cream for dessert if you went and find and a cigar. brandy and cigars and that was, afterwards that, right I could go without the cigar but uh, the pistachio sounds pretty good uh, which is hard to find in Israel by the way I could go for the cigar alright deal you take the cigar I'll take the pistachio I'll now I want to I never had one but, but my dad used to smoke when I was growing up until he quit so it was like I grew up until you know the, we grew up in a very different world. Yeah. Uh, I, I think we should mention that Jonathan Pollard made Aliyah as a story from this past week. It's still a story that confuses me why there was so much, why why his treatment by the United States justice system was so extreme. And I know that Jews always use anti-Semitism as the explanation, but it never made sense to me because it was over multiple administrations with people who were often pretty pro-Israel who weren't willing to give him a break. So I, I don't know what that story is. But I'm happy for his family that he got to make Aliyah. Yeah, but he, yeah, I mean, I mean, the jet, the general argument in terms of the anti-Semitism that was showing through was because it was coming from the intelligence community and and certain, you know, State Department, which mm-hmm. the State Department has traditionally not been the most pro-Israel, pro-Jewish. Often, when we're talking Correct. about the not the politically, but the the bureaucrats who run it. You know, Correct, but even they going are back in the to, si- in a country Going back just to the Holocaust, f- right? When then keeping Jews out of of America because of you know um, in the most desperate times. So I, you know, it's true. And America used to be a country though that had checks and balances and oversight. And when people would appeal to people in Congress or people in various administ- you know, executives of the administrations, they would respond, "We can't. We cannot." touch this this is not something we're going to deal with so it could it could be that it was just fear of the intelligence community and the state department or it could be that when they got the uh the uh classified briefings they were like oh we're not touching it i don't know that's like when those when when those records were released 25 years 50 years when those records were released so that's when you know someone will will find out yeah he did give some actually find out like what was and most likely, it'd also be a complicated story. My guess is it's going to never always be complicated, straight. and we'll probably never really understand uh-huh. it. I want to bring up yeah. two non-stories. One of them is the huge story of the summer, which was the impending annexation of large areas of the West Bank, which grabbed all our attention. And if if you go back, I'm pretty sure we're on podcast episodes saying it's not going to happen. It could. We, you know, we always hedge because we're not prophets, but uh, we were skeptical. And it ended up being such a nothing that people barely talk about it now. It got turned around into, you know, well, the United Arab Emirates made the normalization deal in exchange for non-annexation, which is certainly not a major, I, I believe it was, you know, 
a codicil in there of like, here's one of the requirements that we need. We can't have you annex while we're making peace. But it certainly wasn't the motivating factor. It, it turned out this thing that grabbed all our attention was a, a, a soap bubble that just popped. Am I misreading it? Or a brilliant yeah, political think... chess move. Explain. Right. Well, like you said, right, that, 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 that there was uh, that someone, you know, is trying to push one side and, uh, you know, to get a concession on another side, you, you, you know, it just makes it look good. It sells good in the in, in the market. So someone, you know, came up with a plan, <laughs> you know let's let's push it to its to its let's push it to its maximum right annexation annexation and then we pull back and it looks like it looks like a concession on its own (laughs) Mm -hmm. not going to annexation right i mean we we were talking about this just before we started recording was in that summer period right like two weeks before uh, I was teaching, like this was also during like Corona time or still during <laughs> Corona time, I guess, but I was teaching online classes to students about annexation and trying to deal with the issues and the questions of annexation. I mean, it, it seemed like a real thing, like that it was, it, yes, Mike, was, you're right that we, we'd said, look, we're not sure it's really going to happen. But on the other hand, it was real enough that two weeks before we was, look, but two weeks before like the, the beginning date of the process, we were talking about it and, and seriously trying to un- like uh, help students understand what was happening well yeah and then as you Be- called it a bubble it was like boom it, it was it just, done it was- right no because we're educators and we have to explain what's going on behind the headlines but as a guy who lives in the west bank there were there were no preparations like i just i was yeah. having trouble believing that there was any serious back to this so it's just important at, as time goes on to remember just because everybody's talking about it doesn't mean it's a real thing and, it and could it's be. Which so is what Alan is saying. And it's so saying complicated. It's like yeah. That's why to me it never made sense. It just brings up so many complications. Yep. Uh, first of all, in in international relations, but not but yep. less in international relations on the ground. What does that yep. mean? And and complications for Israeli society. So it just didn't seem like there was no crisis that needed to be solved, and it would create yeah. a whole bunch of crises, and wouldn't necessarily make anything necessarily much better. Yeah. So it just it just always looked weird. So and and sometimes you can you can see a current event story and think it looks weird and it's fake and it turns out it's real. But this one, our instincts were really right that this was smoke and mirrors. It looks like, and, and not a, that it couldn't have happened. Just as a happened. footnote to that, right? Uh, as a footnote yeah. to that, it's interesting that in Benny Gantz's uh, speech the other night, um, he and when uh, Gabi Ashkenazi, the current foreign minister, announced that he wasn't running with blue and white, Benny Gantz said. Um, I'd like to thank Gabi Ashkenazi, and one of his big achievements was stopping annexation. Well, mm-hmm. that was interesting because when they formed mm-hmm. the government, Benny Gantz said, we're, we're joining this uh, emergency coalition to get through two things. We're going to get through corona and annexation. And then when when his foreign minister is now leaving, he's saying, well done for stopping the annexation. But you'd said at mm-hmm. the beginning that this was part of your pillar that you were trying to pass through. So. I found that interesting that, as you say, annexation kind of is off the table, and yet he's referring back to it now as someone who seemed to be supporting it and now praising the person who he says stopped it. Like, also weird. By the way, let's see if it let let's see if it comes back on the table for the twenty twenty one elections. Interesting. That would be interesting. Yeah, it's a good question. We'll see. And we'll see if it's not a game then too, just to dangle. Because yeah. you you were saying that it has diplomatic use as a as a 
raised as a possibility, but also as internal political use yeah. that we could could use. Yeah. Um, and the other non-story yeah. is really any real major changes in the Palestinian world. With Mahmoud yeah. Abbas well, still think, hanging on, so status quo, so little, cha- so well, few changes change and developments. Right. In, in, internally and in, in domestic affairs, absolutely. But I think one of the big changes has been the way that the Abraham Accords that we were talking about before has completely sidelined the Palestinians. Right Before the Palestinian issue was always a, like a veto issue, um, it was a red line for Arab states wanting to or thinking about even having these relationships with Israel. They just seem to now, if there's, some of them came out and said, well, the Palestinian issue is very important to us still, but sorry, guys, we're cutting you adrift kind of thing. And I think that Which, is a huge in theory, and I, you know, friend of the podcast, Javier Retegursa, argued in the Times of Israel this year, like they should really be jumping on this and turning it into, okay, now you guys are friends. And if you want to stay friends, so you have to, we have to, you have to help us negotiate a better future for ourselves. But they just seem to choose to condemn it and sideline it. And that, that just sidelines them, sidelines them even more. And they become more of a non-story. And don't forget, they're also, you know, coronavirus has, has pushed them and almost every Which they day. decided to handle on their own and not work together with Israel and get vaccines from Russia instead of... No, I'm saying, but I'm just saying the coronavirus in and of itself, like, has pushed marginalized sure. people to be even more marginalized, right? Yeah. If we talk about, you know, Uyghurs in China or, or uh, others uh, around the world... It's not the focus. The focus is the damage to the coronavirus to your, to your, you know, structure to people who have restaurants to, you know, the millions of unemployed around the world in the Western societies. So there, is not, they don't have good, uh, um, what's what's the word I'm looking for? A good exposure. I don't know what the exact word is, but exposure at this time. Um, right. There's stories that people are occupied with other things. Yeah. Right. People are occupied with other things. When my pocket is hurting, I'm not thinking so much about other people's pockets. Or Correct. But again, what you're, what you're pointing out is other people aren't paying that much attention to Palestinians, which seems to be their major strategic motive is get people to feel bad for us. Instead of saying strategically, how do we on our own take advantage and work forward? That, that, what you're describing is exactly the problem. That instead of, instead of uh, coming up with ways to advance their agenda... They're falling out of the news, and therefore they've got no strategy left with, other than getting attention. So that's a sign of they need new leadership. All right. Last thoughts before we sign off as we run out of time. Anything to add, fellows? Matt wants to say his favorite, like... his, his most powerful story of nineteen of 2020. <laughs> his last thing. I would, and, and I'd also like to say I hope that next year we'll have less of these challenges in, in some ways. And... But um, for me, one of the things was like sort of the way the human spirit came through. Like this thing with like the bidud, the, the quarantine, when people have to go into quarantine for two weeks. Now they've just changed it, but it was two weeks. And the outpouring of support that people get, like people we barely know were like knocking on our door when we were in quarantine and like leaving cookies outside our door for us. And, and people were offering to go and run errands and go to the supermarket and get prescriptions for us. And just this idea that people w- were pulling together and supporting each other um was really special was really nice and like during Pesach we couldn't have a big seder at home like people weren't allowed to have seder so we went outside into like the street by where we live and our neighbors came out and 
we all sang Manishtana together and, you know, th things like that. It was like the human spirit shone through in a nice way, I think. Yeah, and, you know, obviously we've seen examples of that in the international world, but it's it's reassuring with all the problems and, and various darkness that we come around. It's, it's always nice to see that that's certainly a core of Israeli identity is that sense of belonging and mutual responsibility still seems hardwired into Israeli culture, which is very comforting. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, totally hardwired. I love that way of putting it, but yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, I guess we should have brought some of that whiskey to toast uh, to a better secular oh, year coming up. We should have. We should have. <laughs> so let's commit to, uh, <laughs> to we'll, we'll just have a, uh, <laughs> a virtual toast to the to what we'll, we'll consume later. Uh, wishing everyone a good secular year. Thank you, gentlemen, to uh, a productive you, year, a year of learning and teaching and growing and developing and of connecting to Israel and our Zionist mission, each in our own way. Amen. Thank you, Amen. 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 Thank, Thank you, guys. You guys. And we don't have to log off the Zoom, but I'm ending the episode because it's over. Bye-bye.